0: Calvary, I work hard to make this abundantly clear, so let me put this out before you. That we are a church that gathers together not as perfect people who are doing life perfectly, but as a group of fallen sinners who are prone to sin, who are redeemed by Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all. We gathered together to worship Him because He paid it all. We don't gather because we're good enough. We don't gather because we're the elite. We don't gather because we're those that know. We're not a holy, righteous, perfect bunch of people the world should fear. We're a group of people who point to Jesus with our lives because sin has ravaged us. So we point to the hope that we have, for it's the only hope of this world. Amen? We have Jesus. That's what we have. It's what we have to offer this world. It's, it's Jesus. We gather together to confirm that to one another. So should you be with us and wonder if you're good enough... First, all we have is Jesus. That's what we'll point to. This morning as we lean into the text, I invite you to pull out a Bible. There's a Red Pew Bible in front of you if you didn't bring one. We want to look at the text. We want you to always see that what we have comes from God's Word. We'll be in Acts 8 this morning. I'll give you page numbers as we move. I want to start with this question. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? Now, I bring this up as a question because Jesus is our hope. He's all that we've got. That if we look at our lives and we find no sufficiency in ourselves, and we find all the sufficiency in Jesus, that as we look around and we watch people seek and search out what they're looking for, what they're longing for, what they're hoping will fill their lives, we believe, or at least we testify, that Jesus is the only thing that will fill that need. Amen? So when was the last time you talked about Him? It it could have been with a neighbor, or a friend, or a child, or a grandchild. It could have been on a bus, on a plane in your front yard, or in a lunch line. Now I ask you this, and I put this before you this morning, not because I want you to feel guilty, or like you're falling short. In fact... That's the last thing I want you to feel as we've been moving through the book of Acts. What I'm wanting you to feel is empowered to know that you have the Holy Spirit. This morning, as we're in Acts chapter eight in our series called Empowered, we are walking through the book of Acts. And in doing so, we're watching how the Holy Spirit empowers the lives of normal, everyday believers, just like you and me, people who believed in Jesus and had the Holy Spirit as they go and spread the good news all over the known world. The hope then for us is that we would be encouraged, that we would be exhorted by their examples, Remembering these two things, that the Holy Spirit came to us when we believed, according to Ephesians 1.13. I put that verse in front of you every week. And when the Holy Spirit came, He gave you the power necessary to testify to Him, to be a witness. Remember, it's passive voice, Acts 1.8. I put that verse before you every week. Because I'm wanting us to get, as a church, that having believed in Jesus, we have everything then that's necessary then to testify for Him. One of the amazing things I watched in Papua New Guinea when I was there this summer is people who would immediately come to Christ and immediately want to start witnessing. Like, that was a normal part of early church life. I need Christ. Why? Because He meets His need I have. He, He fills me, and now I have a hope. Why should you tell other people about this hope? And yet sometimes for us normal church-going folks, we miss the fact that the world still needs that testimony. It's easy for us to gather and think that the world's doing fine, that we come together and we meet because we're doing fine, and, and we'll talk about Jesus because we should, and and miss the fact that Jesus is our only hope, and He's the world's only hope. Therefore, you happen to have that which the world desperately needs each and every one of us so as we lean into acts 8 again this morning where we're in, reintroduced to Philip you might remember that he like Stephen was a deacon in chapter 6 and in, in chapter acts chapter 8 we find Philip has fled to Samaria not out of gospel conviction but out of necessity you read that we walked through that last week Philip flees because of persecution And he did it, but much more importantly, while he did it, he obeyed Jesus. That is, while he went, he was a witness. He testified to Jesus. Even in his suffering, he pointed people to Christ. And so when Acts 8.25, where we ended last week, ends, Stephen is still in Samaria, and we pick up the story in Acts 8.26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, "'Rise!' and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert place. I want to point out two things to you about this verse before we keep moving. The first of which is that Philip, who is currently in Samaria, which is far north of Jerusalem, gets called by an angel to go to the south, which is far south of Jerusalem. God has a superintended plan here to move him from one place to the next. And he does so not based on a feeling or an inclination, but by a person. The text tells us that an angel of the Lord told him to go. This would have been an unmistakable experience for Philip. One that yielded obedience from him. And I want to point this out to us this morning because I've had three different experiences this week where people are telling me that God told them this or God told them that, without pointing to His Word at all, as if God is speaking in this way that we've got no concrete examples of. Rather than considering His definitive Word, which He's given us, so we would have concrete examples of. Which is to say this, Be very, very careful and discerning about citing God as a source of motivation for something that's not derived from His Word. We have to be so cautious of that as a church that when we say God led me to do this or God pushed me to do that, that if we're not citing Scripture, we're not looking at His character, somehow tying it to obedience in Christ, it comes across like we do whatever we want we blame God for it sometimes I'm afraid that's true. Secondly, I want to point out this. That as this angel speaks to Philip, calling him to go to the south, this isn't Philip's first step in obedience. You'd remember from last week that Philip, out of obedience to Christ, brought the good news to the Samaritans. Not an easy step. Didn't do it by going. He did it by what he did when he got there, and that was sharing the good news. And in doing so, Philip was faithful to the Great Commission that as he went, he told people about Jesus, this hope that he had. And Philip proved himself faithful. He proved himself faithful. He followed God. He was obedient to his word. Mini-sermon. It's your second mini-sermon of the week. I clearly have some soapboxes to stand on people are often far more concerned about God's specific will than they are His general will. Which is to say this. We often want God to speak to specific situations in our life and give us specific pushes towards things like schools or jobs or relationship or lunch orders. As if God has this will for all these random parts of our life. And yet while he's clearly made himself known in his word, we're really loose about that. We want to know what God's desire for us is and all these particular things, but what he's made his desire known for, we don't care about. Do you see the tension? We don't want to live in obedience in which we've been put before us, but instead we want to keep asking for clarity. At the end of the day, I can tell you that no matter where you go to school or what job you have or what you eat for lunch, it matters less what you do and more what you do when you get there. End of your mini-sermon, but because that's what Philip does here. Philip, under clear direction, chooses obedience. And I think that's going to be one of the thrusts of the text for us this morning, that the Bible pushes us in a life of faith. That in faith, we trust and believe in Jesus. In faith, we proclaim Him as the only sufficient One. But we're not called just to a life of faith. We're called to a life of obedience, too. And so the challenge you see in the life of Philip is a life of faith and a life of obedience. Watch him in verse 27. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Again, if we're paying attention, Philip woke up in Samaria and proceeds to go south in obedience to God and very purposefully because God has a divine appointment for him with a very important Ethiopian man. Has that ever happened to you? You get called to do something, you go, and you're not sure why you're there, and then you end up in a conversation that is why you were supposed to be there? God has these moments for us sometimes, not directed necessarily by angels, but this is what happens to Philip. God calls him to go, to go over to this chariot. The text tells us this Ethiopian man, who by the way was Sudanese, but that's another story for another day, was a court official of Candace, which is the title for the mother of Pharaoh. We know a lot about this guy. We know that he was clearly important. We know that he was well off, that he could even own a part of a scroll would be important, would dictate that he was wealthy. And we know that he fears God for he had come from worshiping. So the Holy Spirit speaks to Philip, again a concrete text, and tells him to go over and join the chariot. Let's stop for a moment and consider that. Because sometimes when we walk through the Bible, we miss what's happening. When Philip, standing in the desert, sees a chariot go by and the Holy Spirit says, go and join them, don't you think that would have been really awkward? Just to walk up and be like, excuse me, Mr. Chariot Guy, I, the man standing in the desert, would like to have a conversation with you. It's an awkward moment to walk up to a a rich guy who's really different than you and say, hey, can I join you? You know, if we've walked through the book of Acts, we've seen lots of preaching events and not much one-on-one sharing. And what we find here is Philip called to go to a guy, and it's really awkward. You know why? Why? Because it's always really awkward. There's always a moment in any conversation that you have about Jesus when you have to cross a major emotional hurdle. How do I bring this up? How do I start a conversation? What do I say? Do I talk about Jesus? Do I talk about hope? How do I have a conversation about this Jesus in whom I, I love this Jesus who fills me this Jesus whom you need? How do I bring that up? At church, I want to testify to you now that it's always awkward. Why? So when you get to that awkward moment, you'll say, Oh, it's awkward. This is a sign. It's a sign for me to be obedient. For me to step into it. Last fall, Danny Lukey shared with us in a contenders group. By the way, if you're a man, you want to join us Friday mornings at 6 o'clock, we'd love to have you. It's a guy's discipleship group. But he shared with us about a statement they learned in crew called three seconds of courage. Just that moment of going, one, two, go. It's like a little kid on a diving board. You just got to jump. And once you're in the water, you're like, oh, it's not so bad. Just the three seconds of courage to step into a conversation that needs to be had to bring up things of eternal weight. And you see that in Philip. You see this obedience even in the awkward. By the way, this would make a great, great movie scene. Philip runs up to him. That was his first big leap of faith and obedience. Philip hears him reading Isaiah the prophet and asks, do you understand what you're reading? See, Philip approaches him, and then this is key. He makes an observation. He doesn't start into this conversation with, excuse me, do you know the Lord? He it might be an awkward situation, but he doesn't make it more awkward. He instead steps into it, makes an observation, attempts to enter into this guy's world, attempts to build a relationship with him. For that's the any goal if you want to share the gospel. It's not to get a niche on your mark or a check in your belt or if I just mixed all my metaphors. It's to build a relationship with somebody. And that's what he does here. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian responds, how can I unless somebody guides me? And he invites Philip to come and sit with him. Now to be fair, church, you're not going to get too many softballs like this one. But again, don't discount Philip's obedience in getting here. Philip was obedient when he got to Samaria. Philip was obedient in coming to the road. Philip was obedient in going to the chariot. He was obedient in opening his mouth. He was obedient in pursuing this guy. In short, what we find is in living a life of faith and obedience to God's Word gives us opportunities. And Philip steps out in faith and obedience and obedience. And the man invites him to join in. Verse 32. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. He's now going to quote Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch says to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Now you may or may not know this, but Isaiah 53 is one of the most profound and prophetic texts in the Old Testament about Jesus. Forecasting Him long before He ever came to walk on this earth forecasting what He would do, describing Him. And in fact, the first six verses of Isaiah 53, Isaiah writes it this way, and hopefully you'll see Jesus. Who has believed what is what He has heard from us? And to whom has the army of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should Look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one from whom he, men hid their faces, he was despised and he was, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned every one to see His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of all of us. Friends, this text clearly describes Jesus and Philip Knew it. It was absolutely a wide open door. But let me ask you this. Would you have known it? I think that's a terribly challenging question for us. And I say this as a guy, and let me just be really frank with you and transparent. Biblical memorization is not my strength. If you call me and say, Ben, what's a Bible verse of this? I'm going to quickly get on my computer or my phone and start checking some things. It's not my strength. There are people who are wired that way. I'm not one of them. So I don't stand here as somebody's telling you, like, hey, you should all have the Bible memorized from Genesis to Revelation. I stand before you as one who struggles in these same things. I laugh, I was talking with my 8-year-old this past week who's in goes to park. And I love the fact that he's memorizing Scripture, but he asks me questions and it dawns on me like, I think my 8-year-old is more spiritually mature than I was in my mid-20s. Like he just has a biblical knowledge that I never had growing up. So when I say this, would we have known it? I don't intend for it to be something to make us feel guilty, but for something to encourage us. This week I was exposed to a 10-year study on discipleship and spiritual growth. Do you know what the number one indicator of someone who's consistently growing is, according to this study? Ten years, they watched people. Was it church attendance? Was it meeting with somebody one-on-one? Was it individual discipleship? Was it programmatic discipleship? At the end of their ten-year study, they said this. Daily Bible reading. If if somebody wants to grow spiritually, what they participate is is daily Bible reading. Now, the study goes on to say that the quantity of it doesn't matter. The consistency of it does. Which is to say that if you can do five minutes on a regular basis, you'll be miles ahead of next next year when you look back on your life. Don't make it out to be this huge, i got to spend an hour every day. Step into it and say, how can I become more consistent with God's Word in my life regularly, whether that's three minutes or five minutes? I would tell you up front, one of the things that's made us me the most consistent in my life in the Old Testament has been an app on my phone that reads the Bible to me. So that when I drive now, I turn off my radio and I listen to Ezekiel. We miss the fact that for generations, hearing the Bible was all they had. So don't discount listening to God's Word. Regular exposure to God's Word is what prepares us. It's what builds us up. So that when we have those situations and circumstances, say, I wonder what I should say here. You'd be amazed at how often the Word God had given you in His Bible will apply that week. Peter writes in 1 Peter. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now coming from Peter, this is an imperative. By the way, that's a fancy way of saying it's a command. It's something to which you are to be obedient to. Always be prepared. It's almost like the Boy Scouts. Over the last several years, I've played church softball with Calvary. It is a lot of fun. It's great at fellowship and a little bit of exercise. If it's something you're interested in doing, I don't mean to have too many commercials here, something you're interested in doing and say you were a college baseball player, talk to Aaron Carlson. If you've never played or t-ball was where you peeked out, talk to Scott. Because it would be really helpful if my team could beat his team this coming year. That aside, I play first base. And if you didn't know this, typically teams put their best athletes on first base. I have the rare and unique ability on our team to stretch doubles into singles. And the first time it happens at the beginning of the year, I always think, I should have started running before the season started. I should have been prepared. That's what Peter's asserting here. Be prepared. Be ready for the opportunity when it comes before you. Be prepared to make a defense. To explain your hope. Be prepared to do it with gentleness and respect. There's nothing that can do that for you more than regular daily immersion into His Word. Be prepared. If you've got to bust out cards from when you were in college and start memorizing verses again, be prepared. Paul teaches Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, two, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In season and out of season. Friends, you have no idea when you'll be called to be ready. In season or out of season. And I want you to know this. That this isn't a word just for pastors. I don't know if you've ever picked up on this. Like, I don't have a special section of my Bible that isn't in yours that speaks just to me and not you. In fact, it's all written to you, of which I'm a part of. So this isn't just for pastors, it's for believers to be ready to speak God's truth, to take the hope that we have in Jesus, the sufficiency of Christ, that Jesus is my only hope, you know how I got through that hard season of my life? Jesus. Do you know how I endured walking through that pain? Jesus. And we preach that. We share that sufficiency in season and out of season at the spur of the moment. That's what you see in Philip here as a man of faith and a man of obedience as he could make... A defense. Verse 35 of Acts 8. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Friends, knowing God's word made it possible for Philip to speak the good news to this Ethiopian man. His obedience to follow the Lord to this road in Gaza. His obedience to chase down this chariot. His obedience to ask a good question. And his obedience in knowing God's Word prepared him to be here. It prepared him to share about Christ. When you read through the New Testament, you'd be amazed how many times you find a a question that's answered and then they reason from the Old Testament why Jesus was the Christ. Like... Can I do that? Those are good places for us to consider, for us to study what does that look like. Because Philip had the answer. He was able to point to Jesus in a significant and meaningful way such that this Ethiopian man believed. How do we know that? Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to... As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chair to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. We've walked through the book of Acts, and every time we see this, we point out that the right response to belief is baptism. That as we believe in Him, we publicly identify with Him. And this man steps out and says, I want to be obedient. What stops me from being baptized? Philip steps in and they dunk him in water on the side of the road. By the way, don't know how much of you have spent time in this part of the world, but my guess is somewhere between Jerusalem on the road south to Gaza the chance of this being full immersion is questionable. My guess is there's six inches of water. That's pure speculation. What doesn't, mode is far less important. We need to get this as a church. I'm a thousand percent behind immersion baptism, but mode is far less important than that you are baptized as a believer, identifying yourself with Jesus Christ. And it's this Ethiopian seeking obedience that matters. He learned from Philip. He'd taken on Philip. In fact, the text doesn't tell us this, but Christian history then speculates what happens to this guy. And speculation tells us he goes to Ethiopia and starts a church. Now, brothers and sisters, this guy had like five minutes of discipleship. And he goes and he starts a movement in Ethiopia, probably Sudan, another conversation. He steps out in obedience. The story continues. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuchs saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And he passed through as he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The Spirit moves Philip again. Don't know what that looks like. Can't speculate to that. We just know he shows up a 100 miles away. And he continues to preach the gospel until he comes to Caesarea. We won't find or hear from Philip again for like 13 chapters in Acts. Next time we pick up Philip, by the way, just to testify the fact that he's a normal person with a normal life, he's in Caesarea living and he's got seven daughters. So clearly he goes on to get married, stays planted there. We don't often think about that testimony in the book of Acts, but he continues to be faithful in a city living there and sharing people about Christ. But I think what Acts 8:26 through 40 puts before us is this that we're tended to see these mass evangelization in Acts and miss the individual obedience of an individual believer telling another person about Christ. And we need to see that example. Cuz I suspect the vast majority of you are not going to stand up in front of 10,000 or 5,000 or 3,000 people and profess Christ. But I'll tell you this, the next time you're at an NDSU game and the Spirit of God shows up and tells you to, I would. Don't know if it'll happen. But what I do know is this, when you're in a conversation with somebody and it starts to feel awkward in a spiritual way, please take that as an indicator of the the need for obedience. That there's a nudge in that moment that says, I should fill it. I should fill it with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Then I don't know if this will be encouraging to you or not. I don't know what your hope is or what your joy comes from or where you derive strength, but Jesus is enough. And if that's all you say and you feel like a big weirdo, that's perfectly fine. They'll probably ask some questions. Because the testimony out of believers in our country right now needs to be, you know, can I just share with you that as a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not enough. And that I don't have all the answers and I struggle all the time. But I can tell you where my strength and my hope lie. I can tell you why, that when I put my head on the pillow at night, the peace it comes from Jesus Christ. That He's all I have. He alone is my sufficiency. Church, if you feel like that's all we talk about, it's because it is. He's all of our sufficiency. And that's what Philip, in this moment of obedience, gets to testify to from God's Word in Isaiah. God is sufficient, even for an Ethiopian man, even for a Morheadian or a Fargonite. I'd make up my own words. Jesus is enough. And we see this played out as we move through the book of Acts. Men stepping out in faith. Men stepping out in obedience. So as we end this morning, let me challenge you this way. Spend time in God's Word. It'll prepare you. It'll help you to be obedient when the time comes. Spend time in His Word. If that's one minute, if that's three minutes, if that's five minutes, if that's 15 minutes, regularly spend time getting to know our Savior and you'll be profoundly moved at how you'll get to share what you're learning as you continue to move closer to Jesus. And finally, there are weeks when I get really intentional about praying for you to have opportunities. This is one of those weeks where it's on my desk to be praying for each and every one of you. That you'll have opportunities to talk about Jesus and His sufficiency in your life. So know that I'm praying for you and others will be praying for you that will have the opportunities to share and declare His sufficiency to others. The church was not built on professionals. It was built on people who believed in Jesus, had the Holy Spirit, and walked forward in obedience. Let me pray for us. Great God in heaven, Father, thank You that You've not called me to be enough or sufficient. Thank You that You've not called me to be perfect. Thank You that Jesus paid it all. And so we proclaim a Savior who is enough. A Savior in whom I can find all of my strength. A Savior in whom I can place my hope. A Savior in whom I can look at to be my peace. Thank You. Father, would You give us the opportunity to participate in what You're doing Father, would You give us the obedience that Philip had and that Stephen had and so many of these other guys had and listening to Your Word and studying Your Word and walking out in obedience. Father, would You give us opportunities to talk about who You are? That we could be challenged by that? That each of us would then take on being prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. Father, the world needs the testimony not of a, cultural Jesus, but of a biblical Jesus. Father, we, Your church, those who gather together to declare Your sufficiency, are the ones that You've appointed to give that testimony. May we be faithful in that. In Your name we pray.